This is the recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number two of a series entitled The Two-Foldedness of Prophetic Truth. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. Those of you who are sharing with us in this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a little and read with us Revelation chapter 21 and 22. The distinctive character of this series is not an attempt to go through prophecy in minute detail, but to demonstrate by a series of extracts that there is a principle running through the teaching of prophecy. A two-foldedness. And last week when we commenced, we commenced at the seed plot of all the Bible. God said to the woman and to the serpent, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. Two seeds. Her seed, thy seed. You find those two seeds are indicated in the days that brought about the flood. For all flesh had become corrupt and only Noah was perfect with regard to his pedigree. I drew your attention that the word enmity is the word Job And the word Job, the book of Job, is the enmity between the two seeds, if ever there was a book where Satan attacked one of the children of God. And you will find that these two seeds are growing together unto the harvest, only by their fruits shall you know them. And when we get to the end of the book, as we have just now, there's a great stress upon the fact that this city is holy. And a great stress upon the fact that the others who are outside are filthy and abominable. And more than once, they are associated not merely with a lie, but the lie. In the scriptures, there is some system of truth, teaching rather, some system of teaching which is called the truth, and some system of teaching which is its opposite and its counterfeit, which is called the lie. And here it's reaching its climax. And the city now divides mankind up. Those who have a right to the city, those who can walk in the light of it, and those who are outside. So this evening, we are leaving the statement in the scriptures of the two scenes, but we pick up the story of the two cities. The two cities. It's interesting to see the very last page of our New Testament is all about a city. And it begins to focus your attention upon the fact that there are many things said in the beginning that were types and symbols and shadows of the reality yet to come. I have a feeling that even John, when he started writing down in his little notebook the description of this heavenly Jerusalem to tell you and me, and he marveled at the transparency of the golden street and wondered at the gates of pearl, I have a feeling the way he writes it is, but you wait till I describe the temple. Solomon's temple was a wonder. So was Herod's temple. And he says, I saw no temple. And you know, that's the glory of it. As long as you've got a temple, and as long as you've got a priest, you're at a distance from God. It's a poor sort of home that has to be regulated by a church and a pulpit or a priest 
and an altar. It's a poor sort of of home that's got plastered on the front door the factory act. Don't you see? We mustn't magnify these things beyond their true purport. As long as there's a priest, you need a mediator. But one day, one day, the temple is going to be put on one side. The lamb is the temple. And one day, in that city at least, they'll have no need either for the sun or the moon or a candle, for the lamb is the light thereof. The lamb dominates the book of the Revelation, and here he is. It's good sometimes to do the old-fashioned thing and read the last page of a book. You know, in the early days, people used to hope that the heroine and the hero would live happy ever afterwards. Well, it didn't always happen, and now today, no story is written with that ending that ends up in a sort of a disaster. Maybe symptomatic of the minds of people. But if ever a book ends up at long last, and they lived happy ever afterwards, it is the long story of the redeemed and the opposition of Satan and all his wiles at last is ultimately defeated. Now, this is brought before our notice by a whole series of parallels. You have this card in front of you. The two seeds. The two cities. The two mysteries. There's a mystery of godliness, but there's a mystery of iniquity. And so on. So we've got a big program in front of us, but I hope it will be of intense interest to you to give you pointers with regard to this great subject. <clears throat> now, we are going to have, imagine we've got a Bible quiz. And of course, all the folks in the chapel of the open book would walk away with the prizes. What is the name and the locality of the first city in the Bible? Don't think too long, as you'll answer me. Thank you, that's got it. Cain city. And he called it Enoch. Because Enoch means dedicated. To whom? Cain was of that wicked one. Cain is said to be of that wicked one. And the first city built in this world was built by Cain for his descendants. And he dedicated it to his master. The very fact that he called it Enoch introduces a feature with regard to the evil side of things. Because when Jude is going to refer you to Enoch, who walked with God, he might remind you, I'm speaking about the seventh from Adam, not the first one. And it's a, a wonderful way in which you can get evil into the minds of people by using names and using words that have double meaning. When we get to the New Testament, it's not so much false seed, but the devils preaches another Jesus. Oh yes, oh his name will be there. He preaches another gospel. He's advocating another spirit. And it's all deception. And if you go through the list of names of Cain's descendants, you'll see there is one named Jared, and the, on the other side there's one named Ired, and Methusael is very much like Methuselah, and it ends up with Lamech, who boasts 70 times 7, and it ends up with Lamech, who lived 777 years. It's there on purpose. Because one of the first things to remember is that even in the question of these cities, Satan was travestying and anticipating God's purpose and putting his own force into the world to do his deadly work. There's no, no vestige ever been discovered of the building of Cain. It was blotted out at the time of the flood. But after the flood, 
we don't read about the city of God first. Keeping pace with a general line of teaching in the scriptures, we might think from our little point of view that God would always be first. But we've already discovered else at other studies that God sometimes waits to be second. Moses, he thought when he put himself before the people of Israel, they would recognize that he was a deliverer. But Stephen says, no, that same Moses, whom they refused the first time, the second time they accepted him, and he draws attention, Stephen does, to the fact that it was the second time that Joseph was acknowledged by his brethren, and we are waiting for the second time when he should appear without sin unto salvation. God can afford to be second. He never explains to us why he tolerates and permits this enemy of truth. That's a thing that we've got to wait to understand when we're old enough. We only say what we do know of God assures us there will be a very complete and satisfactory answer when that time comes. So we're <coughs> facing this evening that the purpose of God in prophecy and the outworking of his purpose of the ages is associated with two cities. As I've said before, you could write across the book of the Revelation, if you like, a sub subtitle, The Tale of Two Cities. And there it's Babylon and Jerusalem. And when the hallelujahs go up in the book of the Revelation, it is when great Babylon is fallen. And when Babylon is fallen, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And you may say, well, what are we going to do with Babylon? That's a place over in Iraq somewhere, isn't it? Well, you've got a lot to do with it, friends. You'd be surprised if you went into even national customs, terms and words that we use. I remember speaking once at a meeting, and I said to the person I had in view, I said, I believe you've got um, the ordinary spring blind in your house, haven't you? They said, yes. I said, I'll tell you the shape of the little thing at the bottom that you hold. It's like an acorn. Well, I said, how do you know that? I said, I'll go back to Babylon and find out. You see, they used to put a piece of the oak tree in their window to placate the god of thunder. And then they went on putting acorns on the bits of, goodness, little knob that's there. Babylon has left its mark in places and ways that you little dream. If you speak about Bacchus, you think of the god of revelry and wine. But Barkash means the son of Kash, which is Nimrod. Oh yes. And I believe there's a, there's a deity in the Scandinavian pantheon who's got a very peculiar name, Zerni Bogus, giving us the little word bogey that frightens babies. But Zerni Bogus is zero, the seed. Nebo, the prophet. Gus, the seed of the prophet Kash. Nimrod, there he is. That's the first one who started this citizenship. So we've got two cities in the book of Genesis. The first one built by a rebel, Nimrod. And then the second one comes to Abraham after he's been dealing with kings of Sodom and others. Melchizedek, first king of righteousness, then priest, and the priest of the Most High God. Nothing to do with the Aaronic priesthood and the tabernacle that came afterwards. That was only uh, for the time being. Christ is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, going right back to the early beginnings. The word Babel in our, in, in our Bible means confusion. 
And one of the many things that you prepare for, you find that the, the uh, name is written in the Chaldean language, that ilu, meaning the gate of God. You see? That which is confusion in the Hebrew language is twisted to being the gate of God. All come in. And the word Salem, of course, is the word Shalom, peace. So there's your two cities. One's confusion. The other is peace. And confusion is here first. And its dreadful mark is all over the world. But one day. But you see, peace is not a mere abstraction. It's vitally connected with a person. And you and I, blessed be God, know who he is. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. You know that one. The government shall be upon his shoulder. He shall be called the Prince of Peace. So these cities not, are not merely accumulated cluster of houses. They are systems. God wanted a place that would be a centre. And if you look at the map of the world, as Mercato's projection, which spreads it out, and you join the two diagonals like that, you could almost put a pin in Jerusalem and spin it round on it. It's almost the centre of the earth. And only just over the way on the map is Babylon. You could put a spin in that pretty well and spin the map on it. There they are, the two cities. You notice the emphasis upon the word holy city, heavenly Jerusalem, and the contrast the filthy, and the abominable, and the lie. Keep those things in mind. Because worship is never absent from the work of Satan. It's a false idea to think that Satan's great concern is to turn people into murderers and robbers and whatnot. That's an accident. If only he could make this place a happy place without Christ, he would have attained his object. And he'll get perilously near it according to the book of the Revelation. For when the, all the various things are done to placate this nation and that nation, they enter into this agreement and that agreement, and they all get one army and one police force and one religion and one church and one set of doctrines, then the man of sin will grip the lot. And they'll all worship the devil. Worship him. When he tempted our Saviour, the last temptation recorded in Matthew is you needn't go to the cross to get the kingdom. I'll show you the glory of them. One act of worship, it's yours. You could hardly believe, can you, that Satan would even go so far as to do that. He did. So, shall we now turn back a little bit to the um, book of Genesis? And see the beginning of this um, travesty of truth. The founding of Babel. Chapter 10 in the book of Genesis is one of the most wonderful documents that you can imagine. Only of course, as it's in our Bible, and you can buy a Bible for a few shillings, who's going to worry about it? But if, if this had never been included, and was discovered just now, it filled the front page of the Telegraph, the Times, the Observer, the Guardian, they'll all be printing it. The pedigree of the nations that everybody was wanting to know and couldn't be sure about. Here it is. But who bothers about that? Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham and Japheth. And it starts with Japheth, verse 2. 
and somebody wrote to me and I've got a headache because oh I'm a bad one at reckoning up figures and I had to reckon up a lot of figures for his benefit and having done it so well he sent me another packet so I'm passing it on to a book that he might get out of the library but where he slipped up was that seeing Shem, Ham and Japheth he thought Shem was the eldest well the, the very passage here says Japheth was the elder but Shem is put first because he was the one that was going to be the line of the Messiah. Oh yes. Then afterwards we get these nations. Well, the second one to give his pedigree is the line of, of Cush. Or Ham, verse 6. And the sons of Ham are Cush, Mitzraim, Phat, and Canaan. And then we get Cush in verse 8, begat Nimrod. And he began to be a mighty or one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter, and so he became a proverb. And the word Marad, M-A-R-A-D, which gives us the word Nimrod, means a rebel. A rebel. And this town was begun in rebellion. And the tower that was described in the next chapter, 11, was begun in rebellion. This time, the rebellion of the building of the tower was to contravene the evident purpose of God that the nations of the earth should go to their different allotted portion. There is a passage in the Law of Moses which said, when the Most High uh, appointed the nations, he gave them their territories and their frontiers according to the number of the children of Israel. Well, you say, how many were the children of Israel? There were millions of them. Oh no, it doesn't mean that. There were 70 went down into Egypt and became the nucleus from which the nation was developed. And there are 70 nations in Genesis 10. And the purpose of God was that Israel should be in the centre, the nations should be distributed round them, and that city should be the city from which should go out light and truth and righteousness and peace. But alas, to read the history of Jerusalem as it's recorded in the Bible, and as it's recorded since the Bible has been written, that the destruction the rebuilding, the horrors of famine, all the things that have happened with regard to Jerusalem, and they haven't finished yet. And one of the signs of Gentile dominion focuses your attention upon Jerusalem. It says, And Jerusalem shall be trodden down to the nations until the fullness of the Gentile be come in, and then all Israel shall enter into their inheritance. They are blinded at the moment. But when they look upon him whom they pierced, when that nation is born in a day, when they become a holy nation and a royal priesthood, when they become the priestly nation of the earth, and you can hear them in the first chapter of the Revelation saying so, unto him that loved us and loosed us from our sins in his own blood and made us a kingdom of priests unto God. Oh, I know a good many Christian people in their churches call themselves a kingdom of priests, but one day they'll have their eyes open. They're no more a kingdom of priests than you are. That belongs to that people and that people only. So God intends that there shall be in this earth a city, a centre for radiating light and truth and peace. And the prophet Zechariah tells you, oh, I think perhaps we better have a look at that. I'm not opening the book, am I? Uh, prophet Zechariah. You say, why don't you follow your notes? If I follow the notes, I don't know where we get. Uh, the prophet Zechariah, the last chapters, deal with the 
final restoration that's coming. And we are told in the 14th chapter, verse 16, and it shall come to pass that everyone that is left, oh, what a statement that is, everyone that is left after the dreadful destruction that's going to come upon this earth, (coughs) of all the nations which came against Jerusalem, they shall even go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. They're not going to keep all the feasts of Israel, but God says you'll keep that one. And the Feast of Tabernacles, among other things, is a demonstration that at long last, peace is come. If you live in a Jewish quarter even today, you'll very often find that they will erect a little booth in their back garden and sit there under a tiny little structure with green leaves and that on it. You may laugh at them, but they know, I hope, what they're doing. They'll sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree and none shall make them afraid. Of course, it's no good quoting that in Parliament. And I don't know what you'd do if you had a summit meeting with Mr. whatever his name is. If you quoted that. But that's the thing that's coming. That's what's going to happen. That at long last, the nations of the earth are going to keep that one feast where they'll sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, none making them afraid. Well, here we go. And they shall go to Jerusalem and keep this feast. And it shall come to pass that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. Now, some people might say in certain climates, well, I wouldn't mind that, but friends, you've only got to live in a place where there's no rain to realize what a blessing it is. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not, that have no rain. You see, superficially, Egypt doesn't depend upon rain. It really does because the Nile gets the rain and takes it to them. But it's just a picture. There shall be a plague if they don't come. So it's evidently something that the nations have got to abide by. And then it says about this city, Jerusalem. The last two verses. In that day shall they be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. You see the purpose of God in this city, Jerusalem. Holiness unto the Lord. Even on the bells of the horses. And the pots in the Lord's house should be like the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judah. The domestic articles now shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take them and see therein all that would be an abomination to do today but not then. And what's the last word in this prophet Zechariah? There shall be no more the Canaanite. No more the Canaanite. You see, Ham, Cush, Canaan, Babel. No more the Canaanite. The Canaanites with us still in one form or another. All sorts of guises, all sorts of leagues, all sorts of conferences, all sorts of denominations. The Canaanite but at long last gone. Now, while we have Zechariah before us, I'd like to turn to chapter 5. And as this is right at the bottom of my notes, there's a lot missed out, you see. But we'll go back again if we get time. Chapter 5. Look at verse 5. Then the angel that talked with me 
went forth and said unto me, Lift up now thine eyes and see what is this that goeth forth. And I said, What is it? The one thing about Zechariah, he never minded asking questions. He keeps on saying, Oh, what is that, my Lord? And what is this? Always oh, on a bad idea, friends. And I said, What is it? And he said, This is an ephah that goeth forth. An ephah is a sort of bushel or barrel or a measure that goeth forth. He said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. An ephah, a symbol of trade. And behold, there was lifted up a talent of lead. Now, lead's a valuable metal in its right place. But this, you'll see, I think, presently, is a travesty of the ark and the mercy seat and the table of stone inside it. So this is an ephah, not an ark. And this is covered with a lid of lead, not a mercy seat made of gold. And this is a woman that sitteth in the midst of the ephah. And a woman, alas, is often used both in Old Testament and New of a false system. Oh, I'll grant you that it's used for the bride of the Lamb, which balances out. But you get that woman, Babylon, mystery, mother of all the harlot abominations of the earth. Here it is. Here's one of her daughters. And he said, this is wickedness. <clears throat> and he cast it into the midst of the ephah. And he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. <coughs> then lifted up I mine eyes and looked, and behold, there came out two women. And the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. Here's the travesty of the cherubim. And they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. What are they going to do with it? They're going to take it back to its own base in the land of Shinar. Now, it's, it, see, it's, it, that's in verse um, 11. It doesn't say take it back to Babylon, because that would have given a chance to some people to say, oh, Babylon never means Babylon in the Bible, it always means somewhere else. But Shinar is the actual country in which Babylon is built. So somewhere, at some time, that land where Nimrod built his first city, that land where the first Gentile king ruled, Nebuchadnezzar, and where that dynasty is going right down until the stone cut out with our hands is going to smash its feet, that land is going to be the contrast to this land with Jerusalem eventually restored, a city of peace, that one destroyed. But what's going to happen here? He said unto me, to build it a house in the land of China. Now if you look a little bit um, further back, you will see, in verse 2, he says, when he speaks about this flying roll, that this is the curse that goeth forth over the face of the whole earth. Now our version says, For every one that stealeth shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and every one that sweareth shall be cut off as on that side according to it. Well, I suppose we could make something of that. But um, I'd like you to keep this passage open for a minute and turn back to Numbers chapter 5, 31. Numbers 5, 31. I'll just read the verse. Then shall the man be guiltless from iniquity. 
Then shall the man be guiltless. That word guiltless is the word translated cut off. Here you get the travesty of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not steal. This one says, Don't you worry about that. I'll give you a few words out of Babylonian uh, dictionary. You didn't say you're stealing. You're pitching. You're scrounging. Any word except the one. You see, that's the Babylonian way of doing it. And on this travesty of God's order for the world, it says, he that um, stealeth is guiltless. Don't worry. Doesn't belong to the master anymore. It belongs to you. Why, is you, why should you worry? And I just picked up um, the Reader's Digest for September 1961. It speaks about this pilfering that goes on. It's got a whole article about it. It says, the British Railways, for example, lost over £927,000 worth of goods in transit during 1960. Could you believe it? In this country, £927,000 worth, because Babylonian code of morals says, let him be let off. He's guiltless, don't worry. When the police called to the cloakroom attendant's house, in the county of Durham, they found 13,680 pennies in 78 paper bags, the proceeds of seven years' theft of a lavatory attendant. So you get from one to the other. And if you're in any way in contact with modern industry, you'll know that it goes on beyond dreams that men sell their souls, take home bits of this and bits of that and bits of the other. As one carpet manufacturer was warned, don't you allow your people to take the odd legs home. You know why? They'll take the lot to make it fit. This is here with us, friends. We've got it all around us. This Babylonian morality or immorality or the lie. What a day it will be when it's gone. No wonder the last words of the book of the Revelation are, even so, come, Lord Jesus. There's no other alternative. Well, now we go back on our track a little bit to Genesis 10, where we have, I haven't got to, oh dear, oh dear, I haven't got to the building of the city of Babel. I opened the Genesis 10, and where have we been wandering? Now it says here, And Cush began Nimrod, he began to be a mighty one in the earth, a mighty rebel. It says in verse 10, At the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Now the word beginning occurs three times in the book of Genesis. Reshet becomes three times in the book of Genesis. You know where the first comes. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. The second one is, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. The third one is, Jacob writing about his firstborn, Reuben, the beginning of my strength, who was an utter failure and lost his birthright. And Joseph had the coat of many colours instead. So the beginning was with God, and the other two beginnings were the antagonistic, anti-Christian Babylonian city, and poor old Reuben, who was unstable as water. But all friends, all friends, there's one more reference to the beginning in the last book of the Bible. Revelation chapter 3 says that Christ is the beginning of the creation of God. 
as we saw later on, he's the light and the lamp and the temple. It's all going to be summed up in him. And all these other types and shadows will have done their work and passed away. So again, you see, God is second. In the beginning, the heaven and earth. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. That's the one that matters. This one's going to be rolled up and passed away and a lot of it go through the bleach of fire before it can be used of God. But that's the way that the prophecy unfolds its story. It says here, um, out of the land, or I'll read verse 10, and the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Erech, and Achad, and Kalna, in the land of Shida. I do remember that the cities in those days were not cramped as we have them today so much. Nineveh was a vast city. It took you, I don't know how long, to walk across it. And it had got any amount of thousands of cattle inside the walls of it. But the point of the city was not so much the number of houses or the inhabitants, but that it was a place that could govern and be a centre from which things could be administered. And so God has his city yet in view. And it says here, Out of that land went forth Asher and building Nineveh. And some folks have said, well, if Nimrod was such a mighty person, why did he allow Asher to go out and build a city that was going to be sort of in conflict? Well, you see, Asher can also be a verb. And the translation could just as well be, out of the land he went forth. Not Asher, but he went forth. And I believe that's the meaning. Nimrod was the founder of, uh, of Nineveh as well. When he was strong, he went and founded another one. And doesn't that make you think of another one that says, he was a wonderfully good king, and was mightily helped till he was strong. And then, they couldn't stop him from putting out his hand to take the censer in the temple and do the office of a priest. And although he was warned, he did it, and he died a leper. You can't get very far in the history of these things, whether it be battles, famines, doesn't matter what it is, you'll soon come up against the worship of God. The worship of God. The first temptation in the Garden of Eden was not to do some outrageously wicked thing, as we would it. The Garden of Eden was a temptation to be as gods, knowing good and evil. And as I've said, we boggle at the word evil and forget we ought to look at the word good. It wasn't a, 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 a terribly heinous, wicked thing in that garden. It was a tree of the knowledge of both good and evil. And God says the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And the epistle of the Hebrew says the mark of an adult or full grown is that having his senses exercised, he knows good and evil. So what was the bait in the Garden of Eden? He shall be as God's. You shall be like the angels, instead of you dithering about with a little tiny kingdom of animals and birds and that. Why not set your throne above the stars and say, oh, my, it's anticipating what we read in the papers, isn't it? I will set my throne above the stars, I will be like the Most High. And the one who said that is Lucifer, and he came and put that on the bait and says, to Adam and to Eve, it'll make you wise. He wasn't tempted to do anything that was apparently wicked. He was only saying to a pair of innocents, you get a grasp of a knowledge that will be too mighty for you. 
pretending that God was keeping back something good for them and all the time he intended they should have that when the time came. But that's another story. But all that's involved in this founding of these two cities. Now when we come to the question of Jerusalem, we've got a tremendous passage. You know how it emphasizes in the scripture about citizenship. Will you look at Psalm 87, because I see that my time is approaching. Psalm 87, where the emphasis upon citizenship and the citizenship of the people of Israel. His foundation is in the holy mountains. The Lord loveth the, the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. <coughs> Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. See, love. That means to say, think of that, now look at this. I will make mention of Rahab and Babylon to them that know thee. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Ethiopia. And he could have gone on if he'd been writing in modern days. I mentioned London, and Paris, and Berlin, and Vienna, and Moscow, and New York. And this man will say, I was born there. You see, I was born there. And of Zion it shall be said, this and that man was born in her. And the highest himself shall establish her. When we come to our own calling, we were strangers from the citizenship, that's the word commonwealth, strangers from the citizenship of Israel. And then he says, you're no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and of the household of God. And in Philippians, he said, let your conversation, you see, your conversation, your citizenship, your citizenship is in heaven. And as Paul had looked back to Tarsus, even that city, which wasn't Christian, he said, I'm a citizen of no mean city. Surely you can say to you and me who are Christians, you are citizens of no mean city. You know what I'm going to say, don't you? Well, don't be a mean citizen, walk worthy of it. Oh, we've got a citizenship. We're not allowed to exercise it now, but it's there in store, uncontaminated, waiting. Well, now with regard to the fate of Babylon, I think we must turn for a moment to look at the prophet Jeremiah. For he has much to say with regard to the Babylon itself and its overthrow. 51. Jeremiah 51. Thus said the Lord, Behold, I will raise up against Babylon and against them that dwell in the midst of them that rise up against me a destroying wind. and will send unto Babylon fanners and they shall fan her and shall empty her land. For in the day of trouble they shall be against her roundabout. Goes on, goes on, and goes on, and echoes what we find in the book of the Revelation. Babylon has been a golden cup in that Lord's hand, verse 7. And then, when you get right through chapter 51, and you're out into chapter 52, uh, you're still dealing with the destruction and finish of Babylon, where you have the, uh, look back, back again in chapter 51, it says, verse 49, As Babylon hath caused the slain of Israel to fall, so at Babylon shall fall the slain of all the earth. And verse 53, Though Babylon should mount up to heaven, and though she should fortify the height of her strength, 
yet from thee shall spoilers come unto her. And then at the end of chapter 51, verse 63, and it shall be, when thou hast made an end of reading this book, that thou shalt bind a stone to it and cast it into the midst of Euphrates, and thou shalt say, Thus shall Babylon sink, and shall not rise from the evil that I will bring upon her. So Babylon is going to be ultimately destroyed. And our last reading will be from the book of the Revelation once more, where we have the uh, chapter 17, Mystic Mystery Babylon, which includes not only Romanism, but a good deal of Protestantism and many other isms, but ultimately Babylonianism in its raw character. And then chapter 18, the commercial side of it, because it says in verse 15 of chapter 18, the merchants of these things which were made rich by her shall stand afar off. If you go through the scriptures and see how folks have been influenced by the fact that they get profit out of a thing. Demetrius, the silversmith, he wasn't so much concerned about the doctrine of the apostle, but he said, if these people believe him, our trade's gone. And that's a very up-to-date argument, isn't it, friends? I mean, sometimes it's only expressed like this. Oh, business is business, you must live. You know? Business is business. It may be a dreadful creed, that, you see. So we have here. And they stood afar off. Verse 16, and they said, Alas, alas, that great city, that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. That's almost like the New Jerusalem. Ah, yes, that was the travesty. For in one hour so great riches has come to naught. And then we get those words which are so sad. Verse 22. And the voice of the harpers and musicians and fighters and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. And no craftsman of whatsoever crafty be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and the, and the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. And then you think of the glorious no mores in the book of the Revelation. No more sighing, no more crying, no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more curse. The contrast between the two. Oh, I can only just give you hints, can't I? That the Bible is the tale of two cities. Babylon that built brick for stone. Substituting brick that God says never use it in building an altar to be for stone. That's the character of it all the way through substitution until the day comes when the Alleluia's go up. And we'll finish with that. Chapter 21. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the former heaven and earth first, or the, not the first heaven and earth of Genesis 1 verse 1. That's not going to pass away. But the six-day creation one, the former of the two. And there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for a husband. And going back on our journey in chapter 19, and after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation and glory, honour and power unto the Lord our God. 
the true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great awe which did corrupt the earth with a fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at a hand. And again they said, Hallelujah. And our smoke rose up forever and ever. It's a dreadful statement. But what can be done with such a polluting type of teaching? You haven't got to shut your eyes. You've got to read your newspapers. And you can be horrified at the way in which immorality is growing to such an extent that the powers that be hardly know what to do about it. These are not merely wonderful poetic exaggerations. It tells you what happens when the evil one takes the reins. Or what a day it will be when the righteous one takes the reins. Shall we not once again then finish as we begun and say, even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now there's much more, of course, that could be said, but I leave it, except one little bit more, which I only dug out recently. The bricks are made of white, a whitish sort of clay, and they are called lebena. And the very self-same letters, without the slightest alteration, gives you the word lebona, incense. That's the sort of thing you find in the scriptures. Babylon builds bricks, and the very word is with just a dot that's put by, because there's no vowels there, you see, just a dot changes it to incense. All the way through you'll find that. That's only another sample. So I've begun by having two or three starts, and I've ended by three or four conclusions.